Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Drew Meredith, how are you going? Pretty good. Another big week. Another big week. What does that mean? I was just staying up all night to watch uh, NVIDIA release their earnings results live. Oh, hey. No. Yeah, I think you do not. <laughs> Actually, well, you might have been. I, no judgment, mate. no judgment, no judgment, mate. Um, yeah, well, it was a big result, and uh, everyone in the world now watches Nvidia. Is Nvidia the Tesla of twenty twenty four? Like, you know, Tesla was basically all anyone could speak about for the last three years. Is that Nvidia now? I think it was twenty twenty three. Didn't it go up like three hundred percent last year? It's only up forty this year. But it's. I was talking to one of the other guys in the office. You know, Mish. Yeah. Um, and he was like, like we've looked at these as individuals. You've looked at stocks. You've you know reviewed funds that held Nvidia for so long. And it's like 12, 18 months ago, it was fifty times earnings, and it was expensive. And why would you ever buy it? And now mm. the company is like seven times bigger than it was, uh, and probably trades on the same multiple, and it's still expensive. It's like CSL is a perfect example in Australia as well. Um, mate, but it's been mate. incredible. Come on. Three hundred percent increase in revenue in compared to last year, and a seven hundred percent increase in profit. Mm. Well, gross I margin of seventy six percent. It's a beast. It's a beast. That's not to say that uh, it's going to continue, but it's grown pretty quick for twenty years. So it's every dollar of sales I make seventy six cents in profit. What does it actually? Does anyone actually know what it does? Well, I think the is it Jensen Huang had to explain this that everyone thinks it just makes little chips, but he said no. There's actually a 27 kilo like whatever it is process. I'm going to be there's going to be so many comments <laughs> after this. A 27 kilo pro like uh, processor that is like all these chips stacked on each other, and it's this giant thing that goes into a data center and probably hundreds and thousands of them. So mm. um, it just sits right at the middle of this AI. You know, AI requires data centers. Data centers require computing power. They also require energy. Mm. It was amazing. Yeah, it is. We are recording this on Friday afternoon, 23rd of February. Uh, it's at 3 p.m., a bit later in the week than we usually record. Uh, just had a few things on this week. Uh, if you're listening uh, to this live, you can say good day in the comments feature, no matter where you are. If you're on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, whatever, hopefully we will see that. You can send your questions through. But 
Uh, usually, this episode goes out on a Saturday morning on the Australian Investors Podcast Two Cents segment. My question for you is: um, There was a, a fair bit of um, commentary this week in the uh, in the media. Um, G'day, Marco. Welcome to twenty twenty four, Marco. I haven't seen you for a while. Hope you're well. Um, in 2020, uh, 2024, the, the topic may be cost of living crisis. And this week we saw um, basically the the peasantry get out the pitchforks and go straight for Woolworths. Um, so I've got a question for you based on this. Um, <laughs> Can I walk out? Like, based on, <laughs> yeah, based on this view uh, that uh, it's been proposed by some uh, quote-unquote journalists. Um is Woolworths the best supermarket stock? What kind of supermarket stock would you be looking to buy in this market? Oh, there was a, did you see that um, Instagram post come out from Chris Kohler? Uh, that was talking about you know how many banks are there in Australia? Well, there's 95, but there's only four that people bank with. How mm. many grocery retailers? Well, there's two. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> groceries make sense depending on the margin. I think between Woolies and Coles, you're getting like 65% of every dollar spent on groceries. Uh, not to mention all the loyalty and other programs and side businesses they've kind of pulled into there. Um, we've historically and still pre definitely prefer Woolies. I think there was a period until like 2016 where Woolies was just smashed by Coles when it was owned by West Farmers and they were investing a lot in new stores. But now, you, I mean, you can kind of feel it. I don't think a lot of, um, as we know, the RBA doesn't necessarily go to the supermarket themselves but you get you almost get a feeling when you go into supermarkets whether it's Woolies or uh, Coles and is there a vibe do you get the vibe too and I just feel like I'm going to get in trouble again Woolies just feels like it's been there's been more more investment more thought at the moment maybe I just don't go to Coles enough but Interesting. So you're Maybe saying like live. the floor tiles are a bit nicer than the Coles floor tiles, for Placement example. and the types of products and the specials that are out and, uh, you know, the milk's always at the back and then the bread's always at the other end. That's mm. just standard. But I think, no, I mean, groceries, it's basically what you're saying is there's like a couple of oligopolies. So, you know, industries where two or three businesses own it uh, in Australia, um, banking's one and groceries is another one. So that kind of protection makes it pretty attractive. Mm. But if you could buy any supermarket in the world, what would you buy? Not Aldi because it's private. Um, Tesco? You'd buy Tesco. I don't know. I, I want to sound like I've travelled and know a bit about <laughs> other countries. Um, Home, no, Home Depot is like Bunnings. Uh, <laughs> Woolies is pretty good. They own like refrigeration good. business now. You could get IGA via Metcash. Um but yeah. the, what the work they're doing on one Woolies X, so the new CEO runs the kind of Amazon-like part of Woolies, but the advertising part that they've, so they, I think they own Quantium, which is like an AI and advertising. So it's interesting how you can be led into purchasing certain things, same as putting chocolate at the front counter so your kids want to buy it on the way out. <laughs> uh, it's the same as advertising in Netflix. And so I, that's kind of why I like um Woolies. I don't think I know enough about. There's like little in Europe. I know El, you've been looking at Aldi's, pouring over Aldi's numbers. Um, Only courtesy of a news.com.au article, which is the the source of all truth in this world. I don't know many <laughs> companies really. own like 35 or 36 percent of market share. Like mm. that's massive. It's huge. 
it's actually when you dig into the numbers, I think Finder publish these numbers regularly. Woolworths is so much bigger than Coles. Yeah. Um, it's 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 really really interesting. Um, was, there is this one thing before we get to Marco's comment in the chat. Um, for those that are listening, uh, I'm just pulling up a, a chart that shows over time. You're not doing a chart crime, are you? This is not a chart crime. This is operating margins. So for those of you that are unanointed in the world of finance, uh, here is your crash course. The operating margins is basically a way to compare a supermarket business. It's the best margin to compare on, not the net profit margin, because the net profit margin includes things like tax, breaks, uh, interest costs on debt and that sort of stuff. So you're better off using this margin. And the media often confuses with this with a net profit margin, and they do it deliberately to make you think that the supermarkets are more profitable than they actually are. So, for example, um, for some reason, somehow, ABC Four Corners managed to suggest that Woolworths' profit margin is like 6%, um, which is just flat 60%. out not true. Six, um, as in the net profit margin. Yeah. Um, but if you look at this chart, so just to, I'll, I'll air it for people that are listening only. Uh, this chart basically shows all of the major supermarkets in the world, Tesco, Coles, Woolworths, Walmart, and Costco from an Australian perspective, right? And it shows that, you know, in the 2022 financial year, um, if we can bring that up there, Tesco's profit margins and Coles' profit margins were more than Woolworths. Uh, the year before that, in 2021, Woolworths was higher than Walmart at 5% versus 4.97, so 0.03% higher. The year before that, uh, Woolworths was the highest, just above Tesco. The year before that, Walmart. And so what I mean to say is if you're looking at supermarkets, uh, the most recent financial year, I think I did just manage to get that up in um, ticker here, 4.6% for Woolworths, 4.2% for Coles, 4.2% for Walmart. The margins are very stable. There doesn't seem to be a great... A gouging. Um, yeah, a gouging under my... <laughs> Probably not a term I want to use right now, but... Yeah, you know, Like NVIDIA is making 76% margin would be comparable, wouldn't it? And they're making six. So every what? million dollars, they're, they're making $60,000 in profit. Well, even your mates at Telstra probably make a higher profit margin. Um the, 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 I guess the key thing that is lost on a lot of people is that when you have supermarkets like Coles or Woolies, you can have the same profit margin from one year to the next but make more profit next year because you're doing more in sales just because things go up in price. Like yeah. Woolworths doesn't tell the world how much mainland cheese is worth because if they did, then you just go to Coles and get it. Um, they just have to cop whatever's coming to them with – Admittedly, some Sorry. pressure on suppliers, <laughs> let's be honest. That's probably the bigger story. If ABC wanted to actually run a real story, that's probably the one that they should be running. So we don't uh, want to break. We don't want to go into this. We yeah. break that news on here. <laughs> yeah, but my point is that, like, yeah, sure, Woolworths is profitable, Coles is profitable, um, but they're, they're not, like, outrageously profitable, even when you compare it to like, the US. In fact, there was a news.com.au article, so opposite ends of the political journalism, Um this was a this is referencing Aldi's profit margin because it's a private business. We don't have complete clarity over this, but um, this is based on 2021 financial year data. Now, quote the article: They brought in 10.7 billion dollars in revenue and declared 900 million dollars in taxable income. That's a margin of over eight percent. So it's a lot higher, a lot, lot, lot higher than Woolies, Coles, and Metcash, which owns IGA. So the cheapest one when you go to the checkout by far, which is Aldi, the cheapest makes the one margin. makes the most profit. 
Well, they, I you also have to pack your own bags. and You have to pack your own bags. Um, and I do a lot of private label stuff. So I just don't, I just think it was pretty horrible reporting. Um, and I just think it was, of course, old mate, CEO of Woolworths shouldn't have stormed off like he did. Like, yeah, I mean, that's a bit. Love a storm off. Yeah. Anyway, Marco says in the chat, it's weird how media companies want, uh, want our companies to lose money. Um, Woolworths have $33 billion on the balance sheet, profit $1 billion, 3% return. Not sure what the problem is. It's just because the, it's the, I guess, Marco, it's just the easiest thing to blame right now. It's so easy to blame a big corporate for everyone saying cost of living is going through the roof. Because like Drew said, it's the most evident at the checkout. And it happens so all the time. Like it yeah. happens in the oil sector where, you know, oil companies could have made basically, not that I'm proponent of fossil fuels, but they, lo they lost billions and billions. And Qantas was an example where they lost billions over multiple years. And not saying Qantas should have made such a big profit, but they've also, when they lose money, they continue to, you know, they don't cut everyone. They continue to run the business. And then they, they, you're kind of offsetting those losses with profits in the future. Um, yeah. And oil, you know, these are, they're operating businesses, so they gain and lose money every year. Just when there's big profits, it, it always makes more sense. And it, I mean, kind of the not tall poppy, but that kind of idea in Australia. It's um, it's one of those things, isn't it, where uh, it's an easy political like sidestep. Like, oh, look yeah. at Woolworths, how much money they're making. They make an increased profit this year. Yeah, maybe, but they're you know, and they're still paying a lot of tax. They're still doing everything else. Um, it's just All a really interesting misdirection. Thing. Misdirection, massive emotional. Everyone trusts four corners, don't they? Um, okay. So, uh, Marco said, no one picks on the local plumber with two staff and $100,000 in equipment making 300K. Let's not yeah. bring that in. We love on, plumbers. Marco. We love plumbers. Um, okay. Uh, Spork256 in the chat. This is just getting into questions uh, straight away. Uh, we'll come back to some topical stuff in just a moment, Drew. But, uh, it did ask about hello, hola, Finn Bros. Would love your thoughts on GPEQ uh, ETF for exposure to private equity. Spork, we can only offer general financial advice on this podcast, and that's to, to everyone, not just you, Spork. Um, but we did last week, however, on the Australian Investors Podcast cover LEND, L E N D, which is a new ETF that does. Um, as Drew covered in that one, um, does private equity as well. This one here, GPEQ, is from Van Eck. It offers a diversified portfolio of the 50 largest and most liquid global listed private equity companies. Uh, Spork, this is something that, uh, not this ETF in particular. Um, I'll let you go and have a look at that in your own time. But I would say that getting exposure to private equity is a really tricky thing if you're looking through a traditional brokerage account because frankly, the whole reason it's private equity is it's not available on the stock exchange. But there are some great individual companies out there. Um, and let's see if they're actually part of this ETF. I'm just on their webpage. I think so. I'm, do I'm doing it's this. Like, it's still quasi-equity. Yes, like you're still investing in the listed companies. So the reason broadly why you invest in private equity, it's an alternative asset. It's generally less liquid so le and less volatile. Uh, it provides you know more cons more uh, and a less correlated uh, series of returns. So it doesn't act like the rest of, the, of your portfolio. Uh, and it provides access to a massive, you know, 2% of companies globally are listed, 98% aren't. So they're the reasons you do it. And I mean, this is kind of a, I'd say like a halfway yep. to private yep. equity. Yeah, that's it. This is probably the closest you can. 
Yeah, this is probably the closest you could get. I'm just showing it on the screen here. KKR. And Barwin uh, has a similar product as well. Yeah, and there are a few of them. This is probably a, a less concentrate. This is more diversified. That's the right English. Uh, this is a more diversified option than the Lend ETF that we talked about last week. The reality is a lot of the best private equity funds are wholesale, wholesale, so they're not available to individual investors to go into directly. And that's because sometimes there are things like lockup periods where you can't get your money out for five, six, seven years or whatever. Sometimes they try and manage that, but um, they're wonderful businesses because they're operating in a part of the market being private markets where it's just quite opaque and valuations are a bit uh, more lenient over there than in public markets. Um, but it's a really interesting um, ETF. I haven't looked that deeply at it, Spork, but I will be looking at it closely uh, along with some other private equity plays over the next three to six months because I think there's a lot of opportunity. Atchison, look pretty closely, closely at it too. Oh, good. Yeah, see, Atchison. Uh, if you, Spork, if you do see a financial planner, uh, ask them if they've got in touch with the Atchison consultants. Um, what I... Uh, what I would probably call out too is that there are other ways to play private markets. We recently had Invesco uh, sat down with them on the Australian Investors Podcast and we talked about senior secured loans. So that's where you invest in the debt side of alternative and private markets. Um, that was a really interesting conversation. So there are many ways to invest in private markets. It's just whether you want to go on the equity side or whether you want to go on the debt side, um, there's a world of opportunities that are coming to direct investors. Um, all right, Drew, aside from bashing on supermarkets, I've got another hypothetical question for you, very much related to long-term investing. Um, could a one-legged man win an ass-kicking competition? On a trampoline, maybe. Okay, that's it. <laughs> now we're going to this one's <laughs> question. I thought that was a good answer. I didn't even prepare for that. I was going to say, uh, have you read in the news at the moment? Is literally everyone predicting rate cuts this year and not just yeah. one, like three to four? Yeah. Everyone. Is it Everyone. is it time for an Andrew Derrimuth call? Go on then. I I think there's every risk that they're flat this year. Whoa! I don't have the button. <laughs> Wait, I might have I might have something that we can play. Call me a contrarian. Anyway, that's something that's... I get why you left your finger in there. It doesn't make sense. Um, Pre-prepared. Um, so that, that's what we could be saying by the end of the year. Um, but you never know, right? You never know. Um, doesn't mean bond yields. So there's a big yeah. difference here that the RBA doesn't have to cut rates for bond yields to fall. So to make money out of bonds and you're getting reasonable interest from them at the moment, the bond yield can fall without the RBA cutting interest rates. They could just say we, we might cut at some point. Um, but three like a, the way you set me up last year was you know there's only eight meetings left and every meeting went down and what is it eight meetings nine meetings left this year anything possible and they're going for three or four rate cuts yeah but that okay so context matters um i <laughs> recently bet my father-in-law a pizza in rome that um i reckon the australian dollar could rally to towards 70 us cents i am very, very much underwater now, it's fair to say, because basically what had happened is people, the US market was about three to six months ahead of us in terms of people expecting rates to be cut. And then old mate came out and said, I can't remember where it was in January. He said something to the effect of, we're not done yet. And then the market freaked out. Bond yields um, reacted 
and the US dollar strengthened to think, oh, maybe rates are going to be higher for longer. And there's very much that risk that it could could happen here. I think there's a bit a bit of pain in the system already. I think people can feel that when they walk around. Um, yeah. Just got to quote. Uh, okay, we'll get to you, Dr. Dradis, in the system in, you, in a second. You too, Lee. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a risk here that people um, do think that interest rates are coming sooner than they actually are. But, okay, one thing that I love, Drew, is when finance people come out and say words like we've just said. <laughs> And then it doesn't actually mean diddly squat to anyone because what does it all mean, Basil? Like, what does it actually mean? So if, say, take your very bold prediction um, of maybe interest rates stay flat, maybe, or largely the same, what would that actually mean? What would that actually mean for someone? That their mortgage doesn't keep increasing. It probably flattens out. Uh, in terms of in and in terms of markets, I think it, be, it means everything's more focused on um, earnings expansion. So the companies, like you saw Nvidia, increase its profit or earnings by seven times. So it, it becomes more about earnings driving share markets than it does a lower you know lower risk free rate or a lower cash rate um, sending the value of shares up further. Mm-hmm. Um- what no, does that do? What I just that... don't trust predictions anymore. <laughs> what does that do to the dollar? What does it do to the dollar? If I mean, if the Aussie, if Australia cut rates before um, the US did, then you'd see the dollar's tank. Not tank, sorry. That's probably a bit of a hyperbole. Um, but the the dollar would generally continue to weaken. Okay. Okay. Um, Lee why, would you, why would you put more money into Australia if your interest rates lower and you could get more overseas in the US with a more stable currency? Yeah, true. Um, Lee wrote in and said, what's going on with STX, uh, which is Strike Energy Limited, ASX STX? Uh, Lee, I'm afraid to say I don't actually know uh, that Strike Energy that well, to be honest. Uh, It's oil and gas exploration company by the looks of it. This is just what I'm reading online. Lee, I'm very sorry. I do not know the answer to this question, but I can look into that for you. Um, Share price has fallen out from 42 to 21 cents in a week um that's that's painful if you own shares i do not own shares and i do not know exactly what's going on um so i will have to take a rain check on that one um drew i'm guessing are you up to date with what uh, what's going on not stx and uh not we kind of stick to the top 50 top 100 so um but there's a lot of earnings downgrades prices (laughs) well if your clients are retired you want consistent (laughs) income and predictable growth yeah you guys are all the same um probably a write down of our assets i wouldn't be surprised um yeah here we go they've got something about one of their assets that uh drilling it looks like Um, yeah, yeah it's just some recent results looks like yeah. um form of pressure yeah i don't know that's this is, where, this is like, the boring part where we kind of try and outsource the anything outside the 100 to uh like a small cap manager who just focuses on those sectors um and then i think keep the majority of our portfolios in kind of blue chip income producing and this sits in the satellite of the satellite not that yeah. we'd this but you know position sizing is incredibly important when you go outside large caps yep yep um yeah just trying to get a quick read on this uh drilling update i'm not i, I wouldn't i'm not in a position to comment Lee, unfortunately but i do look forward to our chat as well mate um thank you very much uh so 
Uh, Mr. Dradus did write in, Drew, just saying, gents, looking sharp, haircuts are paying solid dividends. What are your thoughts on becoming a sophisticated investor for those who enjoy the ETF and index fund playgrounds? So sophisticated investor test, Drew, there are effectively two different tests. One is for assets and one is for income that allow you to become a sophisticated investor under the Corporations Act in Australia. It looks like that may be revised. I don't know when, but it looks like it may be revised. Up to um, 5 million, yeah. Yeah. And the basic gist is that to, if you pass that test, effectively a certain amount of money or uh, yeah, a certain amount of money, effectively you are able to invest in different things like different managed funds. You're able to get advice in a different way. Private um, equity, venture capital, those sort of things become available. Yeah. But um, I think the whole the, the perspective that many people in the industry have taken is that just because you have the $250,000 of income in the last two years or the $2.5 million of assets, doesn't necessarily, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily mean you are a quote-unquote sophisticated investor. Um, so you still need to be just as careful, in fact, probably more careful um, because of the reduced disclosure requirements. So yeah, the big thing yeah. is you, you lose all the benefits of being a retail investor. So the ability to, to sue generally, the you know you don't re- you won't you're not required to receive a statement of advice. All these consent and opt-ins in in terms of the ongoing charging of fees don't need to be signed if you're a wholesale sophisticated investor. Um, and the benefit being you get access to all these old you know new opportunities. Um, but if they go wrong, is where you don't want to be a wholesale investor. But you know there's pros and cons to everything. Yeah, there is indeed. You can be uh, a retail investor and access a wholesale fund. So you can be treated as a retail investor and use your wholesale status to invest in those funds as well. Yeah. Um, the the reality is that... Retail client. Yeah. The reality is that um, it comes with certain benefits. Do you need them? Probably not. But is it nice to have if you do want to get a bit more um, sophisticated in the sense of like your alternatives bucket? Probably, to be honest, um, it probably does help. Um, uh, the, Andrew says, and he sums it up perfectly, the right ETF can outperform many hedge funds. And he says that over on X slash Twitter slash whatever we're going to call it in the future. Um, Drew, we did get some questions sent in advance. First one comes through from Nifty Swifty. Hey, guys, love the pod. Long-term listener, first-time caller. I'm an Altium shareholder. Good on you, Nifty Swifty. I heard in the news they've been subject to a $9 billion takeover offer. I'm wondering if you can fill me in on the implications for a stockholder like me. Yeah, sure thing, uh, Nifty. So the offer uh, was for a takeover of Altium, which is the printed circuit board software business, $68.50 from the top of my head. Um, And it was an all-cash offer. And so effective... That's good. Yeah, it's a great... it, It basically signals conviction. So basically... Um, the market at the time of recording is pricing uh, the shares at $65.60. So that means there's a little bit between current price and offer price. And the reason that that exists is that if you think about what we call that discount, the takeover discount is effectively the level of uncertainty that other investors have that the deal will actually go ahead. So you can get a takeover offer for $100 and the shares only ever rise to 90 before they disappear or slowly close that gap towards the very end. But the reason is that the more unlikely people think the deal is, the further that will be uh, apart. And in this instance, they're pretty close, which means that the market is basically suggesting that takeover is very likely. The thing um, about all these is that 
that's usually Australian company being overtake, taken over by a global company, whether they have global operations or not. There's always the risk of approvals. Uh, major shareholders, like we saw with Origin, deciding they weren't, they, you know, they didn't want to approve it. Um, and I think the big one would be, you know, FERB, who saw it with ANZ Suncor as well, that the Foreign Investment Review Board, I'm not sure if it's the case for this, but in some takeovers, like the CSR one from, uh, is it St. Gaban uh, mm. this week as well, that there are a lot of hoops that have to be jumped through and sometimes competition, Woolworths had that and West Farmers had that last year too. Um, that's why there's always that, not always, but that little gap between price. And we've seen, you you know, we're pretty conservative when there's a takeover offer and it's within say that 5%, not saying a case for this one, um, we're generally, you know, push towards locking it in and moving on and removing that uncertainty. But nat naturally you miss out if there's a bidding war ensues. Yeah, well, that's the thing. People who, I think if you think about like the user regret minimization framework, I think that 5% is a good rule of thumb, Drew. Unless you have conviction that the offer will get better, the regret from selling now is probably not that bad if it does rise to $68.50. So it's what, an extra less than 5%. Um, now some of my friends and some investors I know, including some of our members, have held Altium shares since they were in the single digits. Um, in, which in which case, in which case, um, they, you know, the extra two dollars probably does make quite a bit of a difference um, based on their cost base. But the re the reality is, this is a pretty good offer. Um, and Nifty Swifty, whenever your company gets a takeover offer, don't rely on what you hear in the media. Or on a podcast like the Australian Investors Podcast because they're it's full of crooks. I'm just kidding. Um, it's but seriously, go to the the company's filings, the ASX filings, and you will find very clear and concise information from the company, which they are required to give you to estimate the timeline of things like when you'll be paid, making sure it's approved, which approvals are needed, those types of things, um, and sometimes um, there will be independent expert reports and that sort of stuff to give their opinion. Good question. Um, okay, I think so one, one thing there that we always look at is, you know, you get an extra $3, uh, but if you took all that off the table now, what return could you produce by putting the total investment into other investments? Mm. Yeah. The guard dog of Glasgow says, hey, guys, I own a portfolio of ASX-listed ETFs. I'd like to insure this portfolio against declines in total share market, in total market value of greater than 10% in a 12-month period. Is there a simple and cost-effective way to do this as an individual investor? Many thanks for the terrific <laughs> podcast. At first, I thought many thanks for the terrible podcast, um, but it was many thanks for the terrific podcast. I reckon you edited that before it came in. Yeah. Um, I would say no. Uh, is there a way to ensure that the portfolio doesn't fall more than 10%? You could put it all in cash. Can I be boring? Go for it. Diversification. Ah, yuck. Well, you just don't look at it. You know, if you uh, if you're worried about it dropping ten percent, you're probably a lot of in a lot of growth or equities assets. So, how do you protect against that? Don't view it as just as your equity portfolio. View it as your all of your assets. Then you can do what Owen said and put some in cash, put some in term deposits, and just reduce your exposure rather than try and protect against it. Because generally, protecting and hedging is expensive. And yeah. it's very difficult for the retail investor, uh, just anyone you know, on the market to do. Yeah, I mean, you could look back and uh, I was thinking about this question in the lead up to today. You could, you could look back and 
see that, that the distribution of the Australian stock market returns, um, there, there's, there, you can actually look at it in just like a, you can plot it however you want. And you could say, based on the stock market returns of the last 50 years, how many of those years were more than 10% negative? And you could probably get a percentage and it might look something like, I don't know, I'm just guessing off the top of my head, 20% of the time, say, so one in every five years. And then you could go, okay, one in every five years. Now what would happen if I added US shares to that same mix? So I did 50-50. And then I did the same 50-year time horizon and looked at it. And you'd probably find that instead of one in every five, it might be one in every seven years, so slightly less chance of a, more than a negative 10% return. And then you add bonds in and you might find that it's one in every you know, eight years. And then you add cash in, it might be one in every 10 years. And so the more diversification, as Drew suggests, the more likely it is that your returns kind of mean revert. They come closer to the long-term average um, and the outliers are fewer. But it doesn't mean that even if you're perfectly diversified, it doesn't mean that it, it's not going to happen. Like it could still happen. Okay. Um, all right. We're probably going to a few, a few time for a few more questions here. Um, Drew, what about this one? Um, Burrow smorgasbord. A I'm not sure if there's a Joe Burrow comment. You know, the NFL quarterback for Cincinnati Bengals, or maybe, maybe. Um, Thanks for your Saturday morning I don't, uh, yeah, I mean, I haven't been, yeah, I'm not really up to date in my NFL um, knowledge, to be honest with you, Drew. But I mean, if I was, I would comment. But thanks, I'll take your word for it. Thanks for your Saturday morning pod. No worries. Uh, it's the one I look forward to the most and, and listen to whilst working out at the gym. Wow. You're That's only great. one third of the podcast now, remember, Owen? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So I'll take my one third and uh, thankful for it. Uh, I'm hoping this question gets answered in March and I'm in the running for one of Drew's new books as I'm approaching the magical retirement age in the next few years. Uh, my question is about being fully invested in dividend paying short uh, shares as a source of income during retirement versus having an allocation to bond or cash equivalents and whether this is a reasonable alternative. So we can't give you personal advice, uh, Burrow, as you know, don't have any idea who you are. Um, he said it's a play on Warren Buffett. So I don't get that. Yeah, I'm confused Buffett, too. Buffett, I'm sticking with NFL. That makes more sense. Okay. Uh, anyway, so approaching retirement, we do get a lot of questions come through like this, Drew, and it's a it's a fairly reasonable thing to ask is, hey, I've been investing in shares basically my entire life. Um, I'm approaching retirement and everyone tells me I need to be more conservative as I make this transition. So people would be like, well, can I just, you know, invest in dividend-paying shares. They seem safer than the growth shares. I'm going to get my income. Is that enough? Yeah, I think uh, the natural one is the next question will uh, will indicate as well is it depends. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, certainly, you know, if you if you're comfortable with the risk and you're comfortable with what happened, you know, in 2020, dividends were cut by most groups by 50%. Your income disappeared. Uh, and the values fell at the same time and naturally being fully exposed to shares, you're going to have a volatile experience. But if you can see through that and you've got enough capital to, to put that at risk, then sure. Uh, but the question is, I, we always like the starting point of every discussion we have is, do you need to, you know, if you, the ASX is yielding something like four and a half percent on average, not saying you're investing in the ASX. I'm sure you're in a portfolio of higher dividend paying, 
but you can get four, four and a half from buying government bonds today. So it's, and they're significantly less risk. They're, they're, they're less volatile and uh, dividends can't be cut. You know, the interest rates can fall over time, but the dividends that you're getting now won't be cut. So it's, do you need to take as much risk as that to generate the income that you want? I think this is that the question, one of the rules in our book is like this around, and it was from Morgan Housel as well, uh, was keeping up, almost keeping up with the Joneses or what? what's your reason for investing? Are you investing for more income than you actually need? And if you are, well, you can probably take your, you know your foot off the pedal a little bit. Um, or if you just love yeah. it, and yeah, there's no rule that, that suits everyone. Well, like you said, that the first point of call is um, are you investing for more than you need or more than you want, like, or even more than you know? Yeah. Maybe you haven't even done the work to sit down and know, is that enough? Um, and that's where, you know, you're going to do your risk profile and all that sort of stuff. But We're about naive diversification too. So there's, there'd be a lot of people with a similar portfolio of high income paying shares, but they hold four banks, two resource companies, and those resource companies just do iron ore. Uh, a telecom, like they hold about, 12 companies that they believe are diversified, but in in most cases, they aren't. They're still impacted by the same uh, influences. The next question from accounting is a career for smart assets. I'm pretty sure that's a play on words as well. Hi, guys. Love the podcast. Or hi, Drew. Love the podcast. I thoroughly enjoy the show each week and love how you deliver informative topics with a good dose of banter. I particularly like when Drew answers a long thought out question with, it depends. And I hear Owen's eye roll through the speakers, though I am hoping my question isn't answered the same way. My question is in relation to superannuation, as I heard something the other day that sounded too good to be true and wanted your thoughts. The person told me that when you retire, you can withdraw your entire super balance and then transfer the whole balance back into your super for the purpose of eliminating any tax owed on the remaining super balance when the person dies and the money is paid to their adult children? That was a long question. Yeah. So can you, if you are uh, thinking this way, can you take your money out of super, put it back in, and then when you pay it to your children, reduce the tax payable? Can you do and there's, different, there's different wrinkles to this question too. So the first one is for probably those that don't understand superannuation or don't know that much about super, which is in my experience, a lot most people, you know, we do it for a living, that every superannuation balance is made up of taxable and tax-free component. Mm-hmm. Uh, taxable generally comes from the contributions that your employer's made for you over a long period of time and tax-free comes from your own after-tax contributions. So generally as you, uh, as you contribute more discretionary, or make more discretionary contributions as you get older, your tax-free component increases. Uh, And that matters because if your super is paid to your uh, wife or dependent children or young children, it is completely, yeah, it's all tax-free, the the taxable and the tax-free component. If it is paid to an adult child, the taxable component is taxed at 15% um, on on payment, whether that goes through the estate or not, if it goes to that, um, an adult child, then it is, attracts that tax. So in te- technically, and then the second wrinkle would be that you can access all of your superannuation at any point once you've hit a full condition of release. And that could be 65 over 60 and met the work test and a couple of others. So question one is, uh, there's a tax one, a tax-free component, so you do pay tax. Question two is you can access all your superannuation. And question three is that you can recontribute it. 
the part of sorry, the extension is a long answer. This is what I tried to do myself before. Uh, mm -hmm. The part of question two is every dollar you withdraw from super is made up of taxable and tax-free. So what this person is referring to is if they take out the whole balance that takes out both taxable and tax-free and they put it all back in, that new contribution, if it's non-concessional, will be 100% tax-free. So potentially reducing your taxable component to zero and therefore having no tax payable to adult children. Um, while it's, uh, it's, it's possible and it's been used as re-contribution strategies in the past, it's not, um, I don't think it's widely recommended and it really specifically depends on each person. Uh, and it, there's, as long as the, it, it really depends on the purpose of doing it because I think you're starting to stray into tax avoidance. Um, if it's solely driven by tax, or if there's other reasons that you're doing it as well. I think yep. that's the political answer. <laughs> So this is a, uh, a very thorough answer. Thank you, mate. For those people, <laughs> this is actually a very common strategy, not to do necessarily all of it, but a recontribution strategy. Balance, yeah. The recontribution strategy is actually quite common um, to take money out, put it back in. Um, but you do want to do it the right way. You don't just want to pull things out willy-nilly or just go for everything. There's, a lot of people aren't aware of the tax and untaxed components of a super fund. They just think it's all the same. All the money yeah. that's sloshing around in the super fund is the same money. It's not necessarily. It should be, to be honest. Under the law, it should be. Because if you can do a strategy such as this, just, yeah, I understand. Anyway, um, it's, a good, it's a good question because a lot of people do do it and a lot of financial advisors talk about it. Uh, Spork it's writes legal. In yeah, contribution yeah. strategies are legal. Yeah. Spork writes in and says, not personal advice, but would some form of a hybrids ETF sit appropriately inside the defensive part of a portfolio, along with something like an Oz bond and Oz, uh, sorry, international bond ETF? I'd say personally, in my opinion, the hybrids sit in the alternative bucket. Um, and they're probably, to be honest, they're probably considered alternative growth. It could go either way, alt growth or alt defensive because they pay in consistent income. However, the ETFs are also quite volatile at times. Um, not always, not as volatile as a share ETF, but the hybrids being that um, they do provide a consistent income, they are still equity-like in the way they move. That would be my two cents. Uh, we drew a big line between bank-issued preference shares and everything else. So banks have capital requirements, they have APRA requirements, they're, they're very um, structured and... And yeah, and regulated, and they have to, you know, even insurance companies, you have to re you have to provide your capital, how much capital you have every quarter. So we we tend to see them as more defensive, uh, and their floating rate. Um, and yes, there's a risk that they the risk with hybrids is that the bank runs, you know, defaults or has significant troubles, and they get turned into equity, and you could be worthless at some point. But I think the structure of Australia is such that the banks that's incredibly unlikely. Um, and whether you're being rewarded for that risk is a question, but outside of banks, it's a very different story. So mm. we've held at 1.7 preference shares, so seven group, but they're always viewed as a share, never fixed income. I thought you were saying seven preference shares as in like seven individual different. shares. No, no, seven, the, the group is called Borrel. Very peculiar numbers. There's some sort of uh, water partners trading strategy. Just own seven of them and see what happens. Um, now, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, Graham Williams did write in and said, will AI legislation blunt future growth potential of big tech? Maybe. Uh, depends how it all shakes out, Graham. Um, the law of change is that, uh, what is it? Change is constant. So, um if there is AI legislation, you would have to think that 
um, the companies will find some way of overcoming that because if they don't, someone else uh, will. Uh, so it's not something that necessarily I'm too worried about, Graham, as an investor in a diversified portfolio in technology companies. Um, yeah, I mean, there's obviously going to be some constraints put in place, but who knows uh, what they will actually look like in uh, fruition. Barry Triggenbooth says, which is a play on words, play on names. Uh, I've recently taken a substantial hit on an investment property and now have capital gains tax losses to carry forward. Which investments are available that retain earnings and prioritize capital growth? So that's the general question there. Which investments are available that retain earnings and prioritize capital growth? Drew. Uh, that retain earnings. So generally, you're talking about a tax structure here. Um, yes. And generally, you're probably going to prefer investing directly in stocks uh, that are reinvesting in themselves, so not a dividend-paying stock. Like if you, this isn't a personal recommendation, but you think about like a CSL versus a Telstra. Telstra pays out 98% of its earnings as dividends. CSL pays out something like 30 or 40%. So naturally, if that company is reinvesting in itself, it should be growing. And we say that because if you go into an ETF or a fund, which is the same structure as similar to an ETF, any gains they make are just paid directly out to you. So they're not going to be compounding within the, if any realized gains are just paid out. Um, but either way, whether it's a distributed gain or whether it's the value of your investment going up when it's sold, they're still going to be able to be used to be offset against that loss. Mm -hmm. Compounding is very powerful. Don't interrupt it as Charlie Munger once said, and easily the rudest of the bunch is tax. Um, it's, uh, it, it's always interrupting compounding. And so the basis the basic idea is that you want to be long-term focused and anything that doesn't crystallize your tax sounds like it could be a better op option for people that are long-term focused. I don't think there's a rush to, yeah. I don't see there's a rush to use your losses either. Um, it, I, we just, as part of any portfolio, if something's getting overweight there, yeah, then trim it. And if it's got a gain where well, you've got a loss to offset it. Mm. There are some things that can't be uh, carried forward or offset. For example, collectibles. Uh, I was doing some research into this uh, in anticipation for today's show. I didn't know that gains on collectibles couldn't be offset against other forms of um, oh, has to be uh, losses, losses on collectibles. collectibles. Yeah. yeah. It's a bit of a weird one. So if you're an art investor, sorry. Um, but yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing. And I think what we are going to talk more about, and we've talked about a bit already, uh, the things that retain earnings that are like legal structures, so things like insurance bonds, superannuation, companies. Um, co companies to an extent, you have to be careful with personal services income. You can't just put all your money through a company and expect it to be happy days. But um, I think all of those things will help over time. Listed investment companies um, traditionally have been much higher fee than ETFs. Uh, and traditionally, that premium and discount, the difference between the share price and the actual portfolio inside the LIC has been a headache for a lot of people. And so that has put people off. I would say that um, if you're in that situation, if you're if if you're the type of person that's worried about tax, I think there is a position in portfolios for things like diversified companies, so things like Wes Farmers, you've talked about a lot, uh, even Washington Hotel Pattinson, which is one of the ones I follow quite closely, um, even the listed investment companies that tend to be lower cost. Um, there's the Argo and AFIC licks, which are DSSP, Dividend Substitution Share Plan um, eligible, which you can go and Google DSSP. But what that basically means is um, the dividends are automatically reinvested and you forego your um, 
your franking credits, but it defers the tax payable into the future. It's a really weird and unique structure. I think ETF right. structures in the US are a lot different here too, aren't they? They're, they're here they're just a pass-through entity in the US. I they're somewhat I thought, of a tax-paid entity. They are, but I think there's a requirement for them to distribute income. So similar to yeah. our REITs, it's that there's a requirement. They can hold on to certain amounts of income, but there is a requirement to pass on X amount. Yeah. I'm not an expert on tax law in the US, but if I was, I'd probably say something sensible along those lines. Um, okay, so um, we've probably got time for two more, um, and I do apologise for the um, interruption in my internet. Um, it's, it's Don't worry, it's not a Starlink connection. I think um, I um, answered it better the second time. Everyone can let me know about that. Uh, Jeremy said, uh, still waiting for Telstra being the next tech company that Andrew Derriman's <laughs> Andrew Derriman's insight. And Jeremy also said that MFF is now too. Jeremy, can you confirm in the chat, when you say MFF now too, is MFF now a DSSP eligible lick? Can you confirm that for me? I hadn't seen that news. That's interesting. If so, uh, sh short and sweet super says, to keep general, let's say I've got 40 years to retirement with roughly the same amount invested as my HEX debt. Do I leave HEX and let it take care of itself or focus on paying it off? Is it worth investing in ETFs on my own? If I could put that instead inside super and have it taxed at half the rate, how important is fees in super? Is it worth doing the growth option of just shy of 1% or take the indexing option for diddly squat? So there's about 17 questions in about three sentences there. It's a wonderful uh, question you've sent through, short and sweet, super, good play on words. But I'm going to narrow it down to two questions. Um, first one is, do you pay off hex or do you invest uh, or just not worry about the hex? You only pay, start paying your hex back if uh, you earn more than $51,550 in a financial year. And at $100,000 of income, you pay an additional 6% tax to the ATO, and that's your repayment for hex. Drew, you've crunched the numbers, and you found that hex was only going up at, say, 2 to 3% from, from memory. On average, yeah, so over the past five historically, years. it wasn't it wasn't even indexed from memory, uh, and then they started indexing it a few years ago. But yeah, we had one big jump, and that would have hurt. So I think it was like six or seven percent because hex it now increases based on CPI. But CPI isn't always going to be six or seven percent, and it can actually be negative. I'm sure it'll be zero when it's negative. That's the way the government usually works. But the average increase is like two point eight percent in the last ten years. So ten years every per annum over the last 10 years, about 2.8. And if you think mortgage rates are 5 or 6%, and this is essentially debt, you're, this is the cheapest debt you'll have, even if it was over the long term, if it was higher at one point. I think the bigger question, which equity mates have spoken about as well, is the lending capacity you lose by having hex debt. So when you're looking to buy a house, that's when it probably becomes a, a bigger question uh, and how they're assessing that, if you're looking to buy a house. Yeah, because the reality is that for every $1 that you earn at the moment, roughly the banks will lend you 4 or $5 against that $1. So if you earn 100 grand more, you're going to get 400 grand more in borrowing capacity. But because the uh, because if you earn $100,000, you're getting 6% additional taken away from you versus a normal person that doesn't have a HEX or student loan, um, you're effectively losing probably $24,000, $25,000 of borrowing capacity, maybe even a bit more because your after-tax income is quite sensitive to this stuff. The reality is, in my opinion, don't, I don't think I'm not going to pay it back early uh, unless I do need to borrow money for whatever reason. 
and then as long as I've got the cash, I can pay it down if I want to. And typically all the bank needs to see is like the receipt from your MyGov account that shows that you've paid it off because um, that's where it's all tracked, by the way. Um, I don't think it's a big problem um, just as a thing because the, if you think about it like an analyst, an analyst thinks about an investment through something called the cost of capital. The cost of capital um, is effectively a way to think about how much would it cost for someone to get money in percentage terms. And if you think about a mortgage, a mortgage is your cost of capital is probably about six and a half, seven percent for homeowners right now. For a margin loan, it's probably like 12%. For a credit card, it's probably like 23%. If you think about your hex debt going up in inflation, which might run at say three or four percent this year, according to Dr. Andrew Derrimuth's research, uh, recent quarterly paper, check it out now. Um, that's pretty low cost of capital. It's probably the lowest cost of capital you could get. So you may have more productive uses of your money in shares or in property or something like that. That's how I think about it. Okay, there's another part to this question, Drew, which I'll be quick with. Is it worth doing the growth option for just shy of 1% inside Super or take the indexing option for Diddly Squat? 1% is pretty high uh, for an industry fund like Host Plus or Australian Super or insert name, but you can sometimes get better... Uh, better outcomes because they're investing in non-indexed options. True. Yeah, yeah. I think it's think about what your objective is. So we, as we've talked about, we like passive and active in retirement because we're trying to smooth that ride, and naturally that comes at a higher cost. Um, and indexing is always going to be, you know, you're going to get the benchmark throughout. I think one of the other things that we've seen in in the, this sector is that even some of the active options are going back towards an index because of yeah. what uh, the APRA. Uh, super i think was it my super testing um so they're gravitating back towards the index anyway but yeah one percent without advice is high yeah so that's yeah and you're literally only paying for investment fees it should basically be 100 percent active at one percent yeah uh okay final question for today drew is a very final it's a very simple one um and benjamin groggingham or a different one bismarck beyond bow Beyond oh. yeah, NBA player. He, I think he might have played at Phoenix Suns at the moment. He was at Charlotte when they were the Bobcats, from memory. I'm, not, I'm pretty sure I'm having. If you think Drew is impressive with uh, his financial knowledge, wait till you see him talk about American sports in particular. Uh, Bismack Bionbo writes in and says <laughs> the differences between the Global X N100 ETF and the Beta Shares NDQ ETF. Full disclosure: Global X is a long-term sponsor of the Australian Investors Podcast. Uh, Beta Shares was recently a sponsor of this podcast and has appeared on the show many times before. So NDQ, ETF has been around for a long time. Uh, GlobalX, N100 is a new ETF on the block. Drew, what do you know about it? NDQ sounds like a cooler code. That's probably not the answer though. They've been around yep. forever, so they they booked out all the good codes. Um, I know the fees are different. So I think it's 24 basis points for N100 and 48 for NDQ. Uh, mm-hmm. But they also, being an e- ETF, they have to track a benchmark and the benchmarks are different. So what we probably forget about with ETFs is that any ETF provider has to pay the uh, benchmark provider to use it. So BetaShares is using the actual NASDAQ index, their NASDAQ 100, whereas GlobalX is using a custom index built for GlobalX that broadly tracks the NASDAQ 100. So uh, I'm sure both of them would say there's very very unique differences between them. Uh, but I think they both provide 
pretty very similar, pretty very similar exposures. Um, one's yeah, cheaper. One, this, I'm trying to be very politically correct here. Um, I think, I mean, it's a NASDAQ 100, so, and it's more about which one more closely tracks the benchmark. Yeah. But, you know, you're talking about some of the biggest tech companies in the world, and it's all driven by the top seven anyway. So, um, so Drew's saying, get on the fang bandwagon, the magnificent. I've got my fang. I just, <laughs> I'm also saying not to buy one or Drew. the other because uh, this is not personal advice. So I don't want to recommend one or the other. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a lot of literature there. Just go and compare the fact sheets and PDFs on their websites. Oh, there's Mac. a political answer, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. Um, but no, there was a good question that's come through from Jeremy. Hey, Drew, out there question. What's your view on stepped versus level for income protection outside super? Um, that's a good question. We're actually doing a deep dive, Jeremy, uh, this coming week. So I can actually put that uh, to some of the advisors, if you like, and we can get an opinion on that. Um, so rather than... Trimmer at Waddle Partners is an expert on this too. Yep. There you go, Jeremy, get in contact. But basically, uh, stepped versus level. Level is basically based on when you lock in uh, your insurance policy and how long you keep it for. The earlier you get it in life, the better, because typically you have fewer pre-existing conditions and the insurance company can basically follow you through life. Um, that's a big difference. Um, and that's that's basically, the, that is the difference. So um, yeah, that's it. Um, all right, so for today's show, we did say that anyone who writes into us in March gets a free copy, gets two free copies of uh, Drew's new book, Golden Years, which is written with his business partner, Jamie Nemsis over at Water Partners. Uh, you can get it in good bookstores soon. Uh, it'll be out in April, if I'm not mistaken, The Golden and Years. And airports too. Airports. Drew's going to take a photo at every airport bookstore he goes past. Uh, so he'll be publishing that to his Twitter feed, no doubt. Um and all you've got to do for the next month or so is write into us. You can head to the link in your podcast player if you're watching this on YouTube. There is also a link in the description. Uh, select Ask a Question and the Australian Investors Podcast when prompted. Every week we also give away a free pass to the Value Investor Program on RASC. It's a $499 course for, for you for free. Uh, this week I did like the question, uh, that came in from accounting is a career for smart assets, which is the question about eyes rolling whenever Drew says it depends. So uh, great question. And Marco, given you're in the chat and you are a regular listener, if you write into us, mate, uh, via the service email uh, on the RASC websites, we'll give one to you too. Um, okay. Thank you, everyone who rocked up live. Thank you to Drew from Model Partners. Uh, there is a link in the show notes. Oh, he's got yes. He's got, sorry, how, how dare I? No singing it, this week. I got some okay. pretty harsh feedback last week. So that's pretty fair enough. Um, so Drew gives us his uh, his wonderful joke of the week to send us off into the sunset. Um, Drew, what do you got for us? The past, the present, and the future walked into a bar. Mm -hmm. It was tense. Anyway, it was better than last week, surely. 
I will give you uh, a four out of ten. Anyone in the chat can give it, uh, Drew. That was better than last week because we didn't get out the vocal cords in that one, mate. But I do appreciate you bringing a joke to the to the show every week. Uh, we'll be back next week on the Australian Investors Podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe basically anywhere you like, whether you're on Apple, Spotify, whatever. We've had so much engagement over the past few months on the Rask Podcast across all of our channels, and we are so delighted to do that. Hopefully, we'll see you on the road this year. Thank you, Jeremy, and everyone who tuned in live. And hopefully, uh, you'll get a copy of Drew's new book, Golden Years. The I can't remember the tagline. Something about retirement and never worrying about it. I feel like that's it. And Drew is stumped. He is <laughs> stumped. Uh, I think it's a fun, yeah, secure and um, free retirement, freedom in retirement. <laughs> well, making retirement the golden years all over again. TGY. <laughs> there we go. There it is right there. Thank you, folks, uh, for listening. And Bye for now. We'll see you next week. It's good to see you. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service. Designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.